If you've ever organized a group event, whether it's a family or a corporate event, you'll know how frustrating it can be to chase people for money. Um, And you may even be left out of pocket. Amy Whitehill lost £80 after organising a baby shorter and she decided there and then there had to be a better way. So in May 2019, she launched Collective, uh, a group payments app, along with her co-founder, Pete Casson. Now, as we move into an increasingly cashless society, the app aims to take the hassle out of collecting money and can even collect payments in advance. Collective is experiencing a surge in growth as its users are pivoting to adapt during the COVID-19 crisis. And Amy joins me this morning to tell me more. Welcome, Amy, to the show. Hi, great to be here. Um, We're recording this podcast on the morning that uh, enhanced restrictions uh, have been announced for Greater Manchester. And we've both just had a lengthy offer chat about what that means for us all um, and um, I think it's just something we'll kind of keep in mind as we have this conversation and I'm sure many uh, listeners will be having those same thoughts themselves um, but we do want to talk to you about uh, Collective. It is a fantastic example of a, a business that's thriving um, in these challenging times So, and we're going to hear all about that um, exciting um journey that you're on but let's rewind the clock I want to hear about where the the story actually started like you know I when I heard about why I totally understood um but tell us about the tell us about the baby shower um and how that ended up sparking the idea yeah of course so um I was organizing um a baby shower for a friend and uh, I I am that classic organizer you know in a group of friends or my family or my colleagues uh, where I'll always be that person who's like, guys, we should do this thing. And everyone's like, yeah, that sounds great. I'm then like, can you give me the money to organize the thing or book the thing? And everyone's like, yeah, definitely. We'll get that money to you. Uh, and then I'm all, I'm just always out of pocket. There's always someone who forgets to pay. Uh, and then this particular time when it was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess, um, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I was collecting money for, for a present for, for our colleague who was leaving for, for maternity leave. Um, and I had 10 people pledge 10 pounds each. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I had a budget in my head of a hundred pounds. I uh, went ahead and bought um, a present for hundred pounds and I ended up with 20 pounds um, back from everyone of which 10 pounds was from myself. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I sort of thought, well, hang on a sec, why is this the case? Like my friends and my colleagues aren't, uh, you know, bad people. They're not trying to pull the wool over my eyes. Um, well, at least not all of them. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of like, why is this the case? So uh, I thought, you know, there must be a, an easier way to get money off people. It, people are always like, oh, I haven't got the cash on me right now. Or, yeah, no, I'm, I'll set up that. If you send me your bank details or when I, you know, when I've got a minute, I'll, I'll go onto my banking app and set you up and I'll do this and the other. And it just seemed quite like a lot of effort just to send someone a tenner. Um, so that's kind of really where it stemmed from. I was looking for something to solve my own problem of being out of pocket when organising stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was kind of the beginning of it, really. And so how did you get from there to launching a start a startup? Because we all like I'm the same and uh, my family are we're the, the organizers. So we're always collecting for something. But how do you get from there to a business? <laughs> yes, I think because um, <laughs> we all have it, but none of us actually go and do it. <laughs> so how did you do it? I mean, I was very, very annoyed. Uh, <laughs> so, well, I think because um, I've always run my own um my own businesses. I've always been fairly kind of entrepreneurial. Um, I sold my first business when I was uh, 28. Uh, and at that time when I was um, 
uh, thinking about this problem, um, I was working in a in a rapid growth uh, scale up company as well. So I've always been in that sort of environment where uh, innovation and entrepreneurialism is kind of encouraged, and and you can kind of just try and solve problems. Uh, so at the time, I spoke with my colleague, um, the CTO at the company uh, that we that we used to work at, because uh, I just assumed he would know um, yeah. that there was there was already a solution out there. So I just sort of asked him if, if he knew of anything. Oh, so um, you, were, you just asked, hey, do you know something that will solve this problem? Yeah, because he's uh, the kind of guy who I imagine goes home and reads the app store. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, um, I, I sort of said, Pete, you know, is there an app that does, you know, that just makes it easy for me to collect money off people and try to organise something? And he was like, I haven't heard of anything. So he he went away and had a look because, because again, he thought, well, there must be. And so he had a bit of a, a nosy around. And he came back to me and he sort of said, well, no, I can't, I can't find anything. And and so we kind of like looked at each other and were like, well, should we, should we have a go? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's how it started really. We did a very kind of um, slimmed down sort of design sprint where we prototyped out um, some ideas, got some initial kind of user research and, and used a kind of um, yeah design sprint uh, methodology to, to get a very, very non-technical prototype out uh, mm-hmm. and started testing it and really what we were trying to do was disprove it to ourselves we were trying to find a competitor or a solution that, that already existed what we ended up finding was kind of lots of different ways that you can kind of work around or kind of you know you could use a spreadsheet to keep a note of the costs and you can yeah. uh, send your bank details to people and stuff like that um, but we didn't find something that was so focused on uh, making group payments easy so we uh, we carried on so um, I suppose in the modern day, it, you couldn't find a frictionless way to do it. No, that's it. You, yeah. every, you know, it's a, it was a workaround. It was like a bit of pen and paper here, a bit of Excel over there and a bit of yeah. some bank statements here, maybe an, an expense kind of splitting app over there. But yeah, nothing that did the whole thing. So um, so you and Pete were um, working together at the time. You were both in high level sort of senior leadership roles within that um, business, which was established, it was successful. Um, it must have been pretty scary to step out of that and to go to have a go. What was that whole process like? Yeah, it was um, It was uh, scary, yeah. I think um, yeah, I was chief operating officer and Pete was chief tech officer in a, yeah, a growing company. We had great... Um, opportunities there an amazing team of people really fun place to work so yeah so to sort of uh, then think well should we just you know step outside of that and take a massive risk on something and um, we were fortunate enough to uh, receive some pre-seed funding in, in April 2019 uh, which we knew gave us a runway to be able to go full-time so we'd, we'd done about six months working on it kind of evenings and weekends and mm-hmm. um, and then it kind of got to that point where it was like it, it it was starting to snowball and was getting momentum. So we were like, we need to just be on this and we just need to like completely nail it. Mm-hmm. So we had that funding, which gave us, um, um, I guess, a, a runway for us to kind of go like, let's just throw everything into it and, and see where we get to. And that's when we both left and worked, started full time in, in the May 2019. Which I think, you know, what you have to really believe in your product um, to kind of, you know, and that's the biggest belief, isn't it? To take that step to go to go whole, all in um so the um these pre-seed investment that um how did that come about because that doesn't come easy either um there's lots of um startups that often bootstrap for a very very long time whereas you um had that opportunity where did how did that all come about 
Yeah, we 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 were incredibly fortunate, incredibly lucky. I talk with a lot of kind of my, my fellow founder peers in the in the Manchester startup scene, and it is hard getting that first investment when often an investor is asking for traction or is asking mm-hmm. for some sort of proof of concept already, and you're saying, well, I, I, we've got like very very small proof of idea and proof of concept, but we need a bit of money to to build it out a bit to get the proof of traction. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just very fortunate that we um, we knew someone who was an angel investor who knew us and knew our kind of um i guess our values and the way we work uh and was prepared to i guess take a punt um, and that we we had a he he kind of instantly understood the problem um we we kind of showed the the market research and initial kind of user testing we'd done and said look there is an opportunity here and um that angel investor himself had had been a founder so he kind of got that early early stage bit Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a that is a massive gap, ma- a massive gap in um, in the startup and uh, scale up ecosystem is actually that first early stage investment. Which you get a lot of investors saying or describing themselves as early stage investors, but really when you actually talk to them, they're asking for regular revenues. Now there's a whole kind of two or three year period at a company before you get to, especially if you're building a a tech company where you need to. And capitalize it up front in order to build to a certain level and you, you're or mm-hmm. if you're strategically staying pre-revenue for, for a reason and your your growth metrics are something else you can yeah. be demonstrating traction uh, in other ways um but yeah so early stage investors i think are often um uh on the very late stage of early shall we say yes agreed um, and are you um, continuing to raise money to um, fund the business, or what kind of um, funding approach have you taken from then? Yes, yeah, so we so that was April twenty nineteen, and um, that was we raised a pre seed uh, of two hundred and twenty thousand at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we basically were uh, in the middle of our seed round this March when lockdown hit. Uh, so we we were aiming to raise five hundred thousand, um, and then at to date, what we've raised is two hundred thousand, which um, we closed uh, during lockdown. So the first yes. couple of weeks of lockdown, I was uh, frantically, uh, you know, as, as the world was kind of slowly grinding to a halt, uh, frantically doing sort of legal papers and investment docs um, to sort of close out that uh, some of that money, which was uh, the investors we had committed at the time were, were brilliant and. Um, no one pulled out or, or anything like that. Um, some of the later stage conversations we had disappeared, and that was frustrating, especially as we had a product that was genuinely really helpful for people during COVID. Um, but again, that's just you know a place and a time thing. I think it would have been six months if lockdown had happened. Even six months down the line, it would have been a slightly different story. But we were very very grateful to to be able to raise two hundred thousand during lockdown. Yeah, I can imagine, and uh, I think I can, I can. I suspect those investors are very glad that they stayed in, um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but let's um, just take the, the the that first twelve month period. Um, you know that pre lockdown um, period. You know, like any startup, I mean, so far it sounds like it's been this wonderful rosy, oh, it all just happened, <laughs> which we all know isn't like there will have been a huge amount of uh, work. You keep, um, I've heard you say a few times about being lucky and it's like, but you make your luck. Um, <clears throat> but um, I'm sure there were challenges like any startup. What were some of the challenges that you and Pete encountered during that um, rapid growth phase in the first 12 months? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There's There's a couple and I think often what, um, just on a slight tangent, I think often what happens is people uh, once to start to see some success. That's when we, as founders, start to tell our stories. But we don't. We're not telling them during 
the initial initial <laughs> stages so it so it always sounds like and then we did this and then we did that and then ta-da yeah. it's done um which uh, is, is is possibly misleading for people who are at the, be- the beginning of their journey and mm. um, we had i think we had two kind of big um things to overcome especially in the first few months so we we didn't set out to build a fintech product so our product is in the fintech category or people like to categorize us as fintech because uh, we're group payments so um i guess that makes sense but we didn't sit around one day and say hey we should start a fintech business that that's yeah. not how how we build anything we had a problem and it was a consumer problem and it was yeah. a actually it was also a merchant problem as well which is um most of our social disposable income is spent in group, as groups we do stuff together um and uh, it's hard to collect money as a person and it's hard to spend money as a group of people so uh, that was our problem and it, it just happened to be a fintech solution so mm-hmm. that meant we came up uh, quite quickly against obviously a, a whole kind of world of regulation and having to try and very quickly understand like the, the tech on, on the one hand is fairly straightforward to build i can uh, i can just picture my co-founder who's our cto uh, listening listening to this and rolling his eyes at me as, I, as i'm like it was easy to build well i think um, he's probably going to fall out with you first because you said he goes home and reads uh, the app store yeah no i think i think he'd be the first to admit it awesome. um i want yeah, to know so if that's yeah. true <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's surely some sort of quiz or something. Who do you, how many apps? How many apps can you name in the app store? Um, see how far we get. <laughs> um, but yeah, the um, yeah, so the whole kind of fintech, like the regulatory side of it, and I've um, I've got a bit of a legal background, so that was really um, useful to kind of be able to, to wade through some of that. And we've got some brilliant advisors as well, which we we're very, very, very fortunate to to have on board to kind of help point us in the right direction be like oh you know p- people who've previously founded and run fintech companies and um guys from the, the financial sector so that was really helpful in those first couple of months where we got our heads around what we needed to build and then uh, this, the second uh kind of really big challenge in those first few months was um we we built the product out so, so we started working full-time in the may and we built out the product over the summer and had a bit of a beta testing period in, in kind of august uh, and then we launched the kind of first version, first MVP version of the app in September. And um, we realised within about the first couple of days that we'd built it all entirely wrongly. Um, <laughs> so that was the bit of a moment. Um, and what happened was we had this, um, we had a, a rugby group, like a group of rugby, yeah. um, group of students who play rugby uh, using the app. Um, and they were helping us test it. Um, and then they were going to use it with their on their first rugby session back like mm-hmm. beginning of September um and we were going to literally watch them in the field um like in the field research literally uh use the app and we we kind of realized that actually what what we're doing it's we're gonna have to go and watch you know 40 50 student lads download an app <laughs> from an app store try and get connection in the middle of a field yeah. you know try and work out what they're doing and all they want to be doing is playing rugby and then going out yeah. drinking and we're there going no you should have to download this app first so we realized that how we built it at that point which at that point we built it so that everyone had to be on the app and be part of a group yeah. um and there was a chat function within that and etc cetera, etc cetera. we realized that was entirely surplus to requirement <laughs> completely just wasn't necessary yeah. um so we at that point we ripped out uh, around about 50 percent of the code base um and uh, essentially threw it away um and really really focus down on what what it is that we're doing we're not here to help groups organize themselves there's plenty of communication mm-hmm. apps and things like that that already exist we're not trying to reinvent whatsapp or facebook or whatever yeah uh, but what what our problem is is the payment bit so yeah. we we completely threw out the group concept 
And now all it is is if you're the organiser, you download the app, you create a part and you share a link wherever you're already communicating with your group. So if you're already chatting in WhatsApp and you're trying to arrange something in WhatsApp, you just share the payment link into there and people tap to pay. They don't have to download an app. They don't have to do any banking. They don't have to do anything other than do something as quick as it is to buy something on Amazon. So if they've got Apple Pay or Google Pay, they literally tap on that link, look at it, and they've paid you the money. Um, Or they just quickly enter the card details if they've not got those. Um, And that was a really key kind of moment for us, um, not forcing everyone to have to download the app. Uh, Yeah, but a a really brave one because it's, um, you know, a lot of startups will will hold on to that and struggle to to let it go, whereas you and Pete were able to just, you know, very objectively say that's not working and also stay true and authentic to your original thing, which was this is the problem of collecting money. And that's what we want to try and do, not all this other stuff and get blinded by all this other exciting stuff that you could do. But still difficult to just to throw away half of what you've just built for six months. Yeah, and I think um, I think that's a really big kind of lesson that, that we've learned both in our own careers, but actually also just from observing kind of all of the all of the kind of big name startups and reading their journeys and, mm-hmm. and kind of taking that, I guess, that more that kind of, MVP approach so making sure that you're building the, the minimum uh, version of a thing mm-hmm. to test whether or not it's needed or wanted or solves a problem or is relevant uh, and and then getting the data from mm-hmm. that and then immediately immediately acting on on that data as far as you're able to in, in the really early stages you haven't got enough data to be 100% analytical so there is a mixture yeah. of uh, kind of numbers and gut feel and um, kind of testing and trialing and trialing and improving uh which is which is fine and then obviously as you build it out you, you get more and more data and you can make more and more um numbers-based decisions um but i do think there's a massive place for for gut instinct that sometimes gets overlooked in uh in our data-driven world mm-hmm. uh, and i was having this chat actually the other day with uh, with my brother so um i uh, my undergraduate degree was biomedical science so i did a lot of neuroscience in that um and it, it's kind of we kind of dismiss gut instinct as a non-data-based um approach yeah. but actually when you think about what your instinct is is it's millennia of data that's gone mm-hmm. into forming your brain um that, that that gives you you know you may not be able to kind of quantify it instantly when you have a gut instinct or a kind of a feel about something and in our kind of very scientific rational world we've we've come to kind of push that away but i definitely think there's a place a place for both especially in a startup business especially if you're developing a new product within a within a company within innovation so um yeah so so yeah it was difficult to to throw it away but that's the and again I'm really fortunate to have a co-founder who uh we've worked together before so we're we're aligned on how we do business and that's that's really important so I didn't have to go to him and say hey I think we should throw away half of that work that you've just done (laughs) and him just look at me and say are you insane um (laughs) you know we were look we were looking at it together and both of us were like "Mm, this isn't going to work we need to bin that next move on yeah and probably from your the experience that you've had through your both of your careers and that kind of maturity that you've got um so uh by the end of the year you or so by the end of last year you had uh and you had the new product or when did that, when did, so you ripped that out in September and then what happened? Uh, so yeah, we built, we did a couple of other kind of key pivots in that first couple of months. Um, uh, started getting users on board. One of the really nice things about our product is that because you have to share it to use it, your, your users share it 
for yeah. you on your behalf um yeah. and and then what we what we tend to then get is it is actually funny now that everyone uh, around the world is is measuring um virality and and how viral things are because um we have that exact measure so how many new people that download the app how many people do they share it with on average and how many unique people do they bring us over time yeah um so we're up at about 3.5 in the new in the unique share which is you know we'd be on total lockdown if that was uh, coronavirus um but for us it, what it means is that they you know everyone who downloads and uses our app brings us new people and those people once they come on there's a proportion of them that then download it themselves and then bring new people on etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah we're, we're, we've been, you know, again, the, the sort of product that we've we've built has got that kind of um, inbuilt virality within it. it. It's given us a lot of kind of growth um, that we haven't had to sort of directly pay for. Yeah, it's that kind of Facebook. Um, uh, there's the, is it the golden, what is it, the golden thread? So it's like, I think they worked it out if they could get seven people if you joined Facebook and then you you joined you friended seven people within seven days, then you, that yeah. was how their thing worked. So you've got kind of got something else similar like that um, going going on. Um, so um, we're now up to twenty twenty, and I think the start of the year. Um, well, this is actually where we came across each other, wasn't it? It was the pitch competition at Harvey Nash, but I think you were pitching like crazy at the time, so it was one of. <laughs> <laughs> quite a few pitches you were doing um tell us about what was going on at the start of the year uh, obviously it, with that uh, investment that you were trying to raise at the time I presume that was all yeah yeah that was that was basically basically it sort of from sort of from I guess mid-January onwards it was quite a concerted effort to to raise some more money we had early revenues coming through um but in order to continue to kind of build out and grow and scale uh, as quickly as we could we needed to raise a seed round so yeah, so I was doing like a lot of pitches January, February, um, even sort of the first couple of weeks of March. Um, but a lot, a lot in London, but yeah, Manchester obviously, and and Leeds as well. Um, yeah, so the, it, it did get to a point where I had um, I had one week where I had six or so different pitches that were all like slightly different in length of time. Mm-hmm. So it was you know one the, the quickest one was ninety seconds and the longest one was six minutes, and then there was about four in between that were like different number of minutes. And it, just, it, it got very confusing. <laughs> so like, which, which pitch deck is for what? Yeah. Which thing am I leaving out for this ninety seconds versus four yeah. minutes? And, um, yeah. But no, it's all I, you know. I, I'm I'm a gobby scouser, so I'm always happy to be up on the stage <laughs> and uh, chatting to people. And I genuinely, I genuinely, you know, believe in this product. I, I use it for everything. So yeah. uh, I am one of those people that if I find something, no matter what it is, pe- you know, my friends will often say to me, "Are you sponsored by that brand?" <laughs> I'll be like, "No, I just love their products. It's just great." Uh, it's, it's just this. You should try it. Uh, so I'm just one of those people. Um, so yeah. you know, and obviously it's my own my own product, and you know, I live and breathe this 24 seven. And uh, yeah, so so yeah, I don't I don't mind um, I don't mind pitching. If you're enjoying the podcast, simply hit the like and subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform. If you have the time, leave us a review. You can do that really easily by going to ratemypodcast.com forward slash fast forward. Um, and that's a great place to be because there's a lot of people find it very daunting, um, especially women. Um, I think it's um, almost that you were talking about instinct there and how we learn from all this millennia data. And I think... Um, women in particular have, and not wrongly, have have an awareness that it's that they're going to have a more difficult time 
um, trying to raise investment for their business um, simply because of the odds are stacked against them. Um, but so what advice would you have for, for entrepreneurs um, uh, and particularly women who are stepping into pitching for the first time and what kind of tips would you give them to help them with that? Yeah, I think it's a really key question. And I do think there is a, I mean, I, I do, obviously, I think some men uh, struggle with it too, but I do think it predominantly, you'll find a larger number of women that, that do mm-hmm. struggle. Um, I think I'd say two things. I think firstly, we all know that your chances of being a female founded company and getting VC investment in this country is less than 1%. Yeah. Um, uh, but your chances of doing anything as an entrepreneur are probably less than 1%. So <laughs> this isn't this isn't the career path for you unless you're happy looking at those odds and then being a bit like, well... I can do it anyway. You know, yeah. Two fingers to that. Because so, like, yeah. those are your odds about, about everything. So um, I would say you kind of be aware of that, but, but really... Uh, you know what what does it what does it actually mean like you just put it aside and and try not to think about it and then the second thing I would say is um I think what often happens with uh with women especially if you've come if you're coming into founding a business having been employed for a while in other people's businesses yeah um or especially in corporate businesses or suited and booted businesses um you feel like you need to be a certain way. You feel like you need to present yourself in a certain way to be taken seriously or to be professional enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a big mistake. So I, I think that um, in the early stage of a business, especially the only real thing that an investor can invest in is the team and is the, the founder and the co-founders. So you have to be yourself. You have to, to know who you are and then you have to just go, go and be that person because otherwise you'll, well, A, you'll just come across as boring and like the 30 other people that just pitched in front of you. Yeah. Um, but also B, um, you're, you're creating your own business. So you, it needs to be a place where you're happy to work and where, where you're happy to lead the culture uh, and to, to bring in a team that feel that they can mm-hmm. be themselves and that you can have a, a holistic environment where people can bring themselves to work, be their own person, be creative, bring all that diversity and create something amazing. So if you're going to then not be true to yourself when you go and pitch it's it's not but it's, it's also not really fair on the investor as well in terms of what they're what they're getting so yeah n- know who you are you know especially if you're kind of loud and northern just you know that is what it is <laughs> yeah. you just gotta go with it. <laughs> yeah. It. yeah um we had um so a sort of a similar story from elizabeth tweedle um who was on the podcast last week and um her uh first company that she co-founded with her husband um when they used to go into pitches, um, they realised that um, investors wouldn't take her seriously. So they would really just direct all the questions to her husband. And then they yeah. were like, well, maybe we should, you know, maybe you should turn, tie your hair up and, you know, uh, wear glasses. And then just decided, no, because they don't want money from people who are wanting them to, you know, be, who wouldn't take her seriously. And she was the coder. She's got paint. She had the painted <laughs> algorithms, but they yeah. just that kind of perception that they had that you know he was he was the boss. So, but eventually they did find investors that you know wanted to work with them, um, and um, you know because of who they were and you know for for what they were doing rather than who was doing what or who should be doing. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really key point as well. If you can go into a pitch, um, so so often. There's a, there's, a, there's a power balance, isn't there, with investors and, and founders yeah. pitching, especially if you're pitching in the early stages. But what I always remind myself is my my business, um, so an investor's business, 100% of the business model is finding a business to invest in. Yeah. So they need me more than I need them. If yeah. you can flip it that way around. So, so 
we can bootstrap this business uh, and we can grow it without any investment and do really well. It'll just take us a bit longer. So yeah. for us, investment is is an optional thing that helps us to scale faster and helps us to get those, um, yeah. you know, really helpful uh, um, advisors on board and great networks and, uh, and uh, yeah, like I say, helps us to go bigger faster. Yeah. But it's not our business model. But it is their business model. So actually, you're bringing them the opportunity for their business to do well. So, yeah. so I think if you there was a point because obviously you, we've, I don't know how many investors I've been rejected by. Um, and there comes a point where you kind of reach that point. You're like, okay, that's that's fine. But at some point, you know, you, you're literally, you've got a fund to invest. You've got, you know, terms on that fund. You've got a timeline on that fund. Uh, and you need you need to invest it. Whereas I actually need to choose the right investors for my business. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a really key mindset to have going into a pitch. So it yeah. kind of redresses the power balance a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely. Great advice. Um, okay, so let's talk about COVID. We're uh, definitely um, having more challenges here up north uh, as of today. Um, but it is it is one of the greatest challenges of, I'm pretty sure, quite a few generations. Um, you know, thousands of businesses are having to find new ways to work, record podcasts. Um, but you guys are continuing to experience growth um, and adapting to the needs of the customers. So tell, tell us a bit about what impact this has had and, you know, what's been happening in, in collective during lockdown. Yeah, so it's been a, it's been a, obviously, I think for everyone, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, hasn't it, emotionally? Yeah. But the, the first kind of couple of weeks, we were sort of thinking, well, hang on a sec, we've got a product that, you know, in the round, it helps people to to meet up as groups a lot more easily. So it helps people to, to go places and do things as a big yeah. group of people. Uh, and then that suddenly became illegal overnight. Um, <laughs> and yeah, couldn't, couldn't really have predicted that. So we kind of were a little bit like, mm, what's going to happen? But what we were kind of fairly confident because we haven't built the product. Um, so, so prior to lockdown, our two top use cases for the consumer app uh, were to collect money for sports and to collect money for travel. And they obviously went instantly off the table. Yeah. But we were fairly kind of confident because we, we didn't build a sports app or a travel app. Um, yeah. What we built was an app that, that's for a personality type, which is the social yeah. organiser. So for us, I mean, talking about that Facebook um, kind of example, we know how if we can get an organiser on our platform and engaged um, for, for a couple of weeks... Uh, no matter which vertical we get them in. So if they come on and start using it for sport or if they come on and start using it for travel, because mm-hmm. they are the organiser in their group, they start using it for different different use cases and they diversify their pot uh, their pots that they're collecting stuff for. And yeah. then they bring us new groups of people. So they'll, you know, they may come on and start collecting. And like I, I run a basketball league, a women's basketball league. And so I obviously use it to collect what well, I did before lockdown, uh, to collect yeah. money from, from everyone for, for basketball um, subs. But then... So, so I'm bringing one group of people to the platform. But then actually, if I then go and do a whip round for a present uh, for like my dad for Father's Day or whatever, I'm then exposing it to my family and, you know, and so on and so forth because I'm the organiser. So what we saw in lockdown was absolutely we saw sports and travel use, you know, drop off a cliff. But we saw COVID specific uses coming through that we'd never built the product for. We'd never yeah. seen, you know, we never could have anticipated or predicted. So we saw our users pivot their own use of the product. And so we obviously saw it being used for things like charity collections and and things like that. But we actually saw a big uh, case for people using it to um, to do shopping for their shielded neighbours, especially in the very early days of of lockdown when, um, you know, obviously people shielding didn't want 
because your neighbour's that sort of person, you, you know them, but you probably don't want to give them your bank details. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, especially not, uh, especially not where I grew up in Liverpool. Um, so, you know, actually what we had was both, is a both, uh, a set, like a safe, a COVID safe, socially distant way to, yeah. to transfer money, but also a, like, a te- like a technically safe way to send someone a link that's yeah. not got any of your bank details in it or anything. It's just a tap and pay. Yeah. Um, so we had a really good solution and um, we saw our users doing a lot of shopping um, for their neighbours and stuff through that. And then the other thing we saw was, was gifts yeah. going massively up as well. So that became our top trending category for, for a couple of months. Um, people collecting for gifts for you know colleagues that were that they weren't seeing in, pe- in person that were leaving yeah. or going on maternity leave or someone's birthday or yeah. you know whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so we saw a lot of a lot of stuff in the gifts category. Yeah, and it must have been actually quite nice to see that your product was actually you know helping um, people um, in you know in a kind of like I suppose a social value kind of way, sort of empathetic yeah. way. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the things we've always tried really hard to do um, is try and build something that's really inclusive. So quite a lot of, you know, fintech products or financial products, to be honest, even banking products are quite hard for quite a large proportion of the population to understand or to feel comfortable and confident with, especially older people or people who've got less um, technological kind of confidence. Yeah. Um, So what we try to do for the person paying in who's not the organiser we try to make it as familiar as possible for them to go through a process that they would be most likely to do normally, which is yeah. if they do any sort of online shopping, they're probably using Amazon um, yeah. or they're probably doing something where they're putting their card details in or they're using Google Pay or Apple Pay. Yeah. Um, so, so we try to build it in a really inclusive way so that you can, you know, that you can send someone a message. If they're not on WhatsApp, you can send them that link into yeah. You can send them as an email. You can send them in a yeah, text. As a text. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whatever it is. Uh, and they can just tap on it and pay. So we we were really um, sort of we we're really conscious to try and make make it as inclusive as possible. Um, the the thing that was frustrating at the time, to, to be perfect, to be like completely honest with you, is that we you know we we tried to contact every single retail large supermarket um, to say, hey, with absolutely no technical integration whatsoever, we have something mm. that can help your you keep your customers and your staff safe. Uh, this is it. Can we talk to you about it? We got a couple of responses from a couple of them, but we, we, you know, being being as, as small and as young as we are, we we couldn't get it into those those guys at all. And then, lo and behold, a couple of weeks after that, they all decided to print more plastic and just give people gift cards, which uh, is, I guess, slightly ironic because yeah. if you're passing cards between people, that's still got a transmission risk. <laughs> so yeah. It's cash, <laughs> if not more, because it probably lives in plastic more than it does in cash. Uh, you know, and we're sort of there screaming like, hi, guys, we have this way to just help everyone be a little bit safe. It doesn't, you don't need to plug it into your systems. You just need to let your customers know they can use it. Yeah. A bit and, of in-store you know, advertising. And then yeah, there you go. Just be like, yeah, if yeah. You, you know, if you're, if, you do, if you're socially distancing or if you're shielding and you don't want to be passing cash, use this app. But uh, yeah. obviously it's a fairly big ask, but we were trying, you know, we we're just like, we have a thing, it's already built and it's, yeah. you know, we make it completely free to use, you know, wherever yeah. it needs to be. So, but, um, but no, we couldn't get through. Well, hopefully some of those uh, supermarkets might be listening now because it doesn't look like <laughs> things are going to change anytime soon. That's and, true, true. Um, you know, they're all uh, shouting very loudly about how they're getting rid of all their plastic in their stores, but just, yep. just producing it in different ways. I think our plastic <laughs> output... Did I hear a report recently? It's like our plastic output has gone up by like a quarter over lockdown. 
because of the I, way I wouldn't be surprised getting because deliveries you're disposing, and, yeah. yeah and everything's disposable and th- th- this is the thing and obviously yeah. masks uh, and it, it needs to be that yeah yeah but for for things that we can do so things that can be 100% digital that's not mm-hmm. print that's not print that's not geez, anyway. not yeah. plastic come on yeah come on <laughs> Sainsbury's yeah. come on Marks and come Spencer's on, and Tesco <laughs> if you're listening to yeah. this um, actually, Drop me a message. Somebody, yeah, I might know somebody in Tesco's. Remind me to talk to you about that after this. Yeah, we'll be um, Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's yeah. Sounds like it's uh, so your use cases have changed. But did it have an like? Did you see a growth because of that? You know, did did uh, like how did your sort of growth get affected by that? Because I imagine it kind of dipped yeah. initially, and then what happened? Yeah. So it's 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 interesting because we measure um, obviously we measure a few different things, but we measure both the volume of money going through the platform but, and also the number of transactions. And they did exactly the opposite thing. Uh, and the, the graphs literally go the opposite way. So um, the volume of transactions, so the volume of money going in, so how much people were collecting to spend as a group obviously mm-hmm. dropped because people weren't meeting to do things as groups anymore. Um, it, it didn't fall off a cliff because people were, like I say, they're doing the shopping, they're doing gifts, et yeah. cetera, but, it, but sports and travel had gone, so it did drop. But the number of transactions took a tiny dip in April and then has, uh, has increased increasingly month on month ever since. So yeah. more people were using the platform for more things, but putting less money through. Yeah. So it was it was a, it was literally a half a one and six, you know, half a dozen of something and six of something else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in terms of, was, you yeah. know, yeah. yeah. One thing you can down, see one what that might on. look like. Yeah. On your on your yeah. reporting graphs. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, very interesting. Excellent. I mean, that's really that's really exciting to hear. Um, has that? Um, I mean, are you still? So, what's the plan next? Are you still raising at the minute, or have you? And has that changed the message to investors? Have investors started now pestering you because, as you said, um, investors one hundred percent of their business model is investing, and but now they're looking for <laughs> more sure things, and they're very much looking in the markets that are growing. So, um, you know, what has that? You know, what has that ha- changed in terms of your kind of patter to the investors or has it? Yeah. So, um, yes, it has. So what um, what we've actually just done this this week is closed, closed out the final amount of the round, um, got got the final amount in. So um, we made the call to close the round because we had a valuation that was set and paid by investors before um before lockdown the valuation of our company is arguably greater now that we're three or four months on yeah uh, and our product is growing rapidly yeah um so so yeah so it was becoming a bit unfair to those early investors that other investors were getting in in essence offered a better deal now mm-hmm. um the other thing with investment is obviously it takes a massive amount of time and, and at the moment um you know, is so. So I I clock every every minute of my working time um, on it just to make make sure I've got a good insight into what it is mm-hmm. that I'm actually spending my time doing. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm clocking a ridiculous amount of hours in terms of how many sort of sales and stuff um, mm-hmm. are going through and how much time we're spending on this this you know, building the product out and all the new sort of opportunities. Mm-hmm. So for for us, it's um, we, we came to the decision to draw a line in the sand at this point and then to to you know look. To, to continue yeah. to build out and grow, grow the company at this stage we're we're well capitalized we've got a, a very um a nice long runway which is you know we're very lucky to have um and we can we can continue to build at this way and we've got some great investors that we're 
um, keeping updated and having good conversations with and, you know, updating them with our metrics and stuff um, as the months go on mm-hmm. um, and, and who, who are maybe a little bit, bit, little they invest a little bit further on. Um, and, and again, that's part of the, the whole process of it, isn't it? Finding investors that you, uh, that you get on with, that you like, and that you enjoy, you think you'll enjoy working with. Yeah. Um, and then also working out at which point in their timeline and in your timeline, mm-hmm. it makes the most sense for you to kind of work together. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's where we're at now. We're, we're closing the round um, now. We've raised two hundred k, which is which is great, fabulous amount um, for us to raise in our seed. And um, yeah, and then we'll, we'll we'll grow it out next six twelve months. See see where we get to. Do you have a is it a particular kind of you know where your your apps built on a personality type? Are your investors a certain personality type too? Do you think? <laughs> um, you know, I think the ones they, that we like to make a difference kind of ones. Yeah, we, we definitely, um, so, so both, we've got two angel investors and both of them have founded their own companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's fairly key when I've, um, uh, I guess when I've pitched, when I've pitched to in like cohorts of angels, um, who are high net worth individuals, mm-hmm. um, who are maybe later on in their career, I think probably, especially in the North, if they've come from more of a manufacturing background and yeah. more of a physical product background, it's a lot harder to kind of convey, the opportunity mm-hmm. of a digital fintech product that where we're like this works really well for gen z and millennial people who like yeah. just live on their phone um whereas if the, yeah our angel investors are themselves both technical founder investors uh one in fintech and one in edtech so it's um it's much easier for them to kind of very instinctly get the what we're trying to do and also to understand the stage we're in which is you know, we've, we've got our financial models, we've got, uh, you know, this is what we're trying to build now. It may change tomorrow and they're okay with that. Yeah. Um, and then we're very fortunate to also have an institutional fund that, again, is genuinely early stage. So they're very supportive and they're part of a bigger kind of ecosystem and they can provide lots of support and, and um, like practical support along the way as well. Um, so, so, yeah, I think people who are like in the digital space or the fintech space or, um uh, but, but also people who are kind of uh, get get that we're going to always be trying to experiment and innovate. I think yeah, uh, that that's our kind of that's those are our kind of investors. Will you raise again? Uh, yeah, I think I think we will. I think um, we'll raise again at the point at which um, I'm at the point at which I'm confident enough to say this is now scale up mm-hmm. investment. Yeah. Uh, so we, you know, we've had two, um, two like nice sized rounds to enable us to understand properly our problem and make sure we mm-hmm. build the right solution, uh, and then to start to get the product market fit. Um, and, and the next kind of logical step um, would be to raise again at the point at which we can say, great, we've got everything in place, and now yeah. it's a case of just cranking the levers up. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of uh, yeah. That, yeah, that, that'll be when it when it makes sense to do it yeah. again. Take collective global. Um, <laughs> nice. So, so, but right now you've got a really nice runway. Um, um, so what, like, so what does the future then look like? So what does, what's the rest of 2020, 21 look like for a collective? Yeah. So it's a, it's a really been a really interesting time, obviously over lockdown, seeing the consumer side of the platform really grow and be kind of used for lots of different things. What it also gave us the opportunity to do was to pull in the um, the enterprise side of our platform a lot sooner in our, in our timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, we've got a very clear mission, very clear top-level picture. 
which is just to make group payments simple and seamless. Like it's just too much of a hassle. Just make it easy. That, that's what we need to do. And then once we've done that, we'll, we'll know we're done. Um, so for us, that's always been a two-sided equation. If you're someone organizing a thing, you need to be able to collect money easily and you need to be able to spend that money easily. So, um, so what up with the other side of our platform on the merchant side is we've, we've been developing over the last couple of months, um, the tech out to enable merchants to use that simple group pay tech that we've, we've built for the consumers to sell directly to groups. So that's been really exciting. And we've had, um, we, you know, we had pre-sales uh, on, on board that people be like, uh, hello, can I have this yet? And we'd be like, yeah, it's just on its way, um, you know, nearly ready. Um, and actually, again, and again, it works across a, a number of different verticals. So if you're a merchant mm-hmm. selling um, events or activities where, where you need to, lots of people to book on like maybe you need 10 people to pay a deposit and then you need 10 people to pay a final payment and mm-hmm. um, we can we make that really easy for you to, to to get all that money from those customers so you secure those bookings quicker you yeah. know what your numbers are sooner and your organizer uh, isn't then being pushed to make payments on people's behalf and take that risk uh, yeah. you know because you, you then get an oversight on everyone in that group and everyone is paying in um, and then also on the the product side so if you're selling um, or gifts is the classic example because we'd seen on our consumer data mm-hmm. gifts obviously taking off online online gift purchasing and um, so if you're selling gifts as a you know an e-commerce site to to people who might be, be buying that as a group so usually like higher ticket items or uh, you know things like jewelry or um mm-hmm. or things that are slightly higher priced um you, what you'll what you'll be experiencing is a lot of uh cart bounce so if someone you know if i'm looking for a present for someone and i come on and i say oh oh, this would be a lovely thing, but it's £300. That's way outside my individual budget to spend on that yeah. person. But I know I can do a whip round because it's their birthday and I can go and ask all our friends to chip in or, um, yeah. you know, friends and family to chip in. Uh, it, currently, I would just leave that site and I'd go off to WhatsApp or Facebook or wherever and start asking people if they wanted to chip in for this thing. Uh, and I may never come back to that site or, you know, I may forget about it. But what we enable merchants to do at checkout is to enable their consumer to split the, split the bill. So if I'm there yeah. looking at a £300 item, I can just I can click to instantly essentially reserve the item yeah. and share those links straight away into WhatsApp for everyone to tap to pay in less than 10 seconds. And then everyone's mm-hmm. paid in. And at the point at which everyone's paid in, it triggers and takes those payments and the purchase is, is complete. So, so yeah, so we've, we've built, uh, built out the merchant side of it, which has been very, um, very exciting. And we've just launched... Uh, one of the most exciting things I think we've ever built, um, which is a feature called CrowdPay. Yeah. So building on that kind of group paying and the triggering kind of pre-authentication side of the technology, yeah. what this enables you to do as a merchant, uh, so, so a good a good case example for it is um, is a sale. So we're working with um, with a with a female football brand mm-hmm. um, who who's doing a sale uh, next week actually, and she's using our CrowdPay tech to sell that so basically what it says is you know there's a deal so she's got say she's got i don't know 50 hoodies that she wants to put into the sale she um she puts that out on her instagram and facebook wherever and basically says if we get you know 20 people uh, into this deal um then the deal triggers and the deal will happen so people can click on that thing and say yes i definitely want that hoodie it's like you know it's 50 percent off yeah definitely yeah. click to pay and what you're doing at that point is you're, you're pre-authorizing your card to make that payment if the deal happens yeah so everyone has like you know one day or 24 hours however long the merchant sets to to get enough people on board to trigger the deal to happen um and then at the point at which that that there's enough customers committed to the deal um it triggers and takes those payments at that point 
So what it means for the merchant is they they have got a lot of security in 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 knowing how many units they need to sell to, to be able to, to to put that price down. Yeah. Or if you're doing it in a pre-sale way, if they're doing like, you know, they want to do a limited edition run of, of an item, they know they can get those pre-sales. But it's they not get the sales before like, they actually produce the product, is what you're saying. Yes, basically, yes. But, Brilliant. But, but it's no risk to the consumer because if the deal doesn't go through, yeah, the, the payment doesn't, doesn't happen. Yeah, they just get it or they don't get it. It's almost like yeah. bidding for something on eBay. But you're basically, you are going to win it as long as it, so almost it's like on eBay, only one person wins it. But on, on yeah. this thing, everybody wins. Everyone's if everybody wins, yeah. everyone's, everyone's a winner. Yeah, exactly. And because it's so easy to share, uh, you're getting your, your, your brand fans to share it on your behalf. So if I'm on, yeah. a, on a brand's Instagram and I'm like, I love that handbag. Yeah. Um, oh, look, I can get it on a, on a group deal. Um, I can just instantly share that to my mates on WhatsApp or I can share it on my Instagram or, or wherever because yeah. there's a link uh, yeah. and it, it gets shared on your behalf um, as, a, as a merchant. So you're, you're getting your advocates to do your, your sharing for you. And yeah. people aren't just committing by saying, you know, they're not just liking and commenting or signing up to an email list. They're committing yeah. with their card details. So it will definitely happen or it definitely won't happen. Um, yeah, so we're, we're very excited about the, the crowd pay feature. Oh my goodness, I can see uh, I can see influencers all over Instagram listening and uh, getting this onto their onto their uh, platforms. Um, and I don't think you're going to need much help now with the supermarkets either, <laughs> based on what you've just described. Um, so uh, so lots going on. Um, sounds incredibly exciting, um, and it sounds that you're very excited by it um, too, um, by the best feature that you've ever built. But yeah, sounds sounds uh, sounds ace. Um, Listen, I think, uh, Amy, I could talk to you all day, but um, we both have um, lots of challenges in what to do with it in regards to what's happening immediately around us with um, with today's announcement. Um, so uh, let's um, let's wrap up the show with some advice um, from from you. Um, so what would be some advice that you might leave um, other founders, perhaps those that are pivoting their business the same way you have? Um, maybe some advice that you wish that you should have had at some point in your in your journey, but never had. Um, yeah, what would you? What would be your top um, pieces of advice to wrap the show? Yeah, so I think um, I think to the, to the kind of first question, founders who are sort of trying to pivot and that sort of thing at the moment. I think I would just say, um, absolutely do. Like, be prepared to fail fast. Um, always work out what is that minimum 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 test you can do to understand if the thing you want to build or the thing you think you need to spend money on needs to happen make sure it's a big enough test that it's like obviously going to give you a, a definite answer or and close to definite uh, and then mix that with gut instinct and don't be afraid to say i just have a feeling about this let's test it see what yeah. happens um on, on the kind of product side i think on the on the founder side like if you're thinking of starting up a business that sort of thing I think I'd probably try and um, actively put you off um, <laughs> unless uh, unless you, I, th- I think, I think, um, I think startups get, or the startup lifestyle or the startup career mm-hmm. path, I guess, often gets over glamorized um, by the big success stories. Yeah. And I think what, what we often fail to do is to be like, it, that that's you know you start hearing people using this phrase now that 10 year overnight success <laughs> you know that that's sort yeah. of actually there was 10 years of real graft yeah. like real kind of sacrifice you know all your friends working nine to five jobs and then going and doing fun things in the evenings and what you've done is nine to five of 
sales and business stuff and then you need to do five to nine on something else in your business and you need to do yeah. nine to midnight on something else and then you need to go yeah. up again at five and crack up and do the next, do it all again yeah you know yeah. it's not it's not a uh it, if we're talking startups don't a lot of people you know want to start their own business because they think it gives them the the control over their lifestyle uh, i would argue <laughs> you have less control over your lifestyle yeah uh, less work-life balance you know and i think that's fine if, if you're if you're that way wired and if, if you're that way yeah. you know that's what you want to do but just just be aware unless you're unless you're quitting your job to start a lifestyle business you're quitting your job to do two jobs three jobs four jobs yeah. all rolled into one so yeah. um so, so it's not for the faint-hearted yeah, and often jobs that you don't actually know how to do. Um, oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. And even then, to the thing you said earlier, um, which is like, you know, for women um, and investment anyway, is that, you know, obviously women get 1% of investment, but it's actually 1% of the 1% that all entrepreneurs manage to achieve. So it's being aware of the odds are going to be stacked, being happy that the odds are stacked against you from the outset. Yeah, you have to be slightly contrary as a person, I think, <laughs> to to want to do that with your life. Um, but yeah. if you, you know, if you do do it, and if you are um, that way minded, it's the most rewarding thing you you can possibly ever do. Yeah. So that's the flip side of it. Love it, um, Amy. Thanks for sharing your story, and it sounds like there's some exciting, more exciting things on the future horizon for for you guys. Um, what with a whole lot of hard graft. Um, to get there but um, you're certainly wired that way um, and you're certainly contrary um, so keep uh, keep doing it uh, out there for us all and um, yeah just um, yeah just keep keep rocking it it sounds like you are on, on an amazing ride um, for listeners um, we hope that you've enjoyed um, Amy's highs and lows and um, hopefully her advice will um, maybe not give you a better night's sleep because it doesn't sound like you're going to be getting much sleep <laughs> <laughs> at all. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Trish. Fast Forward is a weekly interview podcast brought to you by Tech Manchester, an incubator for digital and creative startups in the Northwest. I'm your host, Patricia Keating. The podcast is produced by Sarah Bellier, audio editing by Jamie Gownlock, and music by Parma Violence. If you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line at info at techmanchester.co.uk or follow us on any of our social channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, all under Tech Manchester. Manchester.